Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece and ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the gift of music and its ability to put into words what we feel deeply in our heart. I resonate with that Irish hymn, part of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Lord, there is much pain that has befallen this world. There's a lot of confusion as well to know what do we do with our life, our lives in light of in light of this fallen world. Lord, we do feel limited in our power, in our experience. We feel limited even in our opportunities to know what what to do to bring light to this dark place? Who do we talk to? How do we bring the message of salvation, not just, not just here in Hillsboro, but throughout the world? We want to be faithful to You in our lives, in our workplaces, amongst our families. Lord, we want to be all that You've called us to be as Your holy priests, as Your saints, Your sanctified ones. And I pray, Spirit, that You would give clarity, You would give us understanding as we look at Your Word, that we would be empowered to live out all that You've called us to. You would give us understanding, you know, what does this mean for us in the life, the situation that You've put us in. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um. I want to begin by just introducing the text in probably a little more lengthy introduction than I, than I would typically give. Um, what I'd like to do is talk about Exodus as a whole and how Exodus has impacted me uh, in our study of it together. When we picked the book of Exodus to study through, I had no idea what, was, what, what, what we were going to be taught as a people and especially myself personally in and, and talking about how Exodus has impacted me. I want to draw that a line from that into how that directly impacts um, our understanding of our current existence and even how that ties into today's passage, which directly deals with the priesthood. So that's kind of where I'm going. Um, As I mentioned, the study of Exodus has really impacted me, probably I'd say more than any other book that I've studied. It's been paradigm shifting in a number of different ways. In fact, it's, 
it's totally reoriented the way I look at Scripture, particularly the New Testament. But also, um, it's significantly reoriented the way that I understand my existence, my life today, what it, what it, what it really means to be a Christian What do we Americans do in light of texts like Jesus' command that says, take up your cross and follow after me? Or what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that all who seek, I'm sorry, this is second, this is Timothy, all who seek to live a godly life will be persecuted. And in 1 Corinthians, if Christ is not risen from the dead, we above all people should be most pitied. What do we do with that, honestly? I believe these statements to be true, but they don't particularly reflect my life. Not like I think they should. And so it it prompts me to ask the question, am I really being a faithful Christian? Does my life line up with what I see in the New Testament? Because I want my experience as a Christian to be more than an ideology. I want it to be more than just a, a worldview to, to, to understand science and history. I want it to be more than just a philosophy of how I'm supposed to understand life. More than an emotional buzz that we get on Sunday when we sing a song. More than platitudes that we offer to hurting people. And I'm not saying that it is just these things. What I am saying is I'm, I fear my faith becoming that. Why? It's because this is how Christianity is often portrayed within our culture. I feel the culture's binds, so to speak. Cheap is the word that comes across in listening to DJs on Christian radio stations, or when I walk into a Christian bookstore and I look at the majority of what's there, this offer of a better life, when I peruse the content on Facebook and email and it's just filled with platitudes, I'm not saying there's something explicitly wrong in these things, but they just don't seem to line up with what I constantly find myself reading in Scripture. Find myself asking, where's the blood? Where's the pain? Where's the the desperation, this, this longing for heaven? What gets communicated about Christianity is not necessarily wrong, but it just seems so shallow. I read in the Bible that, to use that analogy from a couple weeks ago, I read in the Bible that we're offered the ocean. And I see and hear about people around the world who are racing with all of their energy, with their very last breath, to get to the shoreline. While Christianity portrayed in our culture is kind of off to the side of the road, beckoning people to come play in the kiddie pool. And it's not that there's anything necessarily wrong with the kiddie pool, but it's like, is is that really what this is about? It just seems to be a, a disconnect. And I have to ask myself, 
regardless of what I know to be the real thing, what does my life reflect? What am I aiming at? Because I don't want to be a cheap Christian. I, like you, don't want to squander the, salva- the, the blessing of salvation on investing it in a typical, comfortable, easygoing American life. So what do I do? I'm haunted by what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Go ahead and flip there. Chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5. Verse 8, we'll be coming back to Exodus. And where would you put yourself in this little diatribe that Paul gives to the Corinthians? He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, like the refuse of all things. Then I have to ask myself, who am I imitating? Corrupt Corinthians for Christ. You see, I want this. I want what Paul has here. I want to understand what Paul understands. Because I know he gets it. He's going straight to the ocean because he knows there is no kiddie pool that will come close to satisfying. But how does one live like this, especially in our context? How does one live like this? How does one embrace becoming the scum of the world? And honestly, I'm not totally sure. But Exodus has helped me in this instance. Because in studying Exodus, it's helped me come to a deeper understanding of our place in God's total plan of redemption. Of redeeming and reconciling a people to himself. So if I could summarize it in a statement, it would be this. The blessings of being sanctified, becoming saints, getting saved. The blessings of being sanctified in Christ are not primarily realized in this life. The blessings of being sanctified in Christ 
are not primarily realized in this life. In other words, getting saved is not about getting your life on track. It's about getting God after you die. My purpose here is not so much to enjoy life as a Christian as much as it is to help fulfill the responsibility given to the church. It's not so much to enjoy my life as a Christian, but to fulfill the responsibility that Christ gave to the church in Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that I've commanded you to do. So follow me. What I'm saying is, the tabernacle, the priesthood, all these things that we've been talking about in Exodus, wasn't pointing to having our best life now. It's pointing to something even greater. When college freshmen get the opportunity for a great education, and they end up spending their first year partying and getting drunk, we have no problem calling them fools. And it's because we know that they should know that their parents aren't paying their tuition so that they could squander their investment on their newfound freedom and their newfound opportunity in order to indulge it in their selfish desires. We know that a college freshman should know that it's not that getting to college was not the end. Getting there wasn't the goal. College was a means to an end, a greater end. Maybe it's grad school, but even then we recognize grad school is a means to an end, a greater end. Getting a job at Intel or Symantec, Synopsis. Again, the point is, the tabernacle wasn't pointing to now primarily. It's pointing to something greater. We recognize that the tabernacle initially was the dwelling place of God in the Exodus, right? God created the tabernacle so he could dwell with his people. But that tabernacle pointed to Christ, who dwelt, he tabernacled among us, according to to John chapter 1. So Christ became man, tabernacled among us, but after Christ died and rose again, his work wasn't finished. Christ ascended, and right before his ascension, he commands to the church, go into all the world and preach the gospel, proclaim the message of salvation to all people, and our responsibility now is to do that as we, we await his return. Which brings up the question, why is he waiting? Why doesn't he come now? It's because he's waiting for us to accomplish the mission. He's waiting for us to to accomplish the preaching of the gospel unto all peoples. And in order to help us in this task, he has given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to finish the job. And when he returns, it's when he returns, that's when we'll experience all the blessings that he has promised to us in the covenants. It's at that point that all of these 
promises will be fully realized. There'll be no more shadows at that point. No more pointers, but a full realization of everything that we've been created for. And we're this close. We're this close. But now is not the day of rest. So what does our current mission look like? Well, 1 Peter gives us a clear explanation. Please turn now to 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. In summary, we need to live our lives full, to be, in being fully devoted to our calling as his priests. That's our job. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice where he goes from here. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This text in 1 Peter really is the application of everything that we're going to be talking about today in the book of Exodus. This is what Exodus means for us today. Because it describes the priesthood. Christians are called to be faithful priests who have been sanctified to serve God. What sanctified means is you're set apart. Another word for to be sanctified is to be a saint, to be holy, distinct. And anybody that's a Christian is a saint. They have been sanctified, set apart to serve God. And that's really the summary of really what this message today is about. We have been called to be faithful priests because we've been sanctified by our God to serve Him. And it's tempting to want to preach on this section of First Peter, but as you heard, we're going to get to that later this year. But instead, turn back to Exodus chapter 28. We're going to look at chapters 28 to 30, which explains God's regulations for the priests under the Sinaitic Covenant, or the Mosaic Covenant. So Exodus chapter 28. So again, I want to point out that all New Covenant believers are called priests. All Christians are sanctified and set apart to serve Him. Not just pastors, not just elders, but every single person who has had their garments washed white in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. They have been set apart for a holy service. So people often react to the Roman Catholic idea of the priesthood. And they'll say something to the effect of, we don't have a priesthood because Christ is our priest. And although it's true... Christ is our high priest, that doesn't mean that the priesthood has been done away with. There is only one high priest, and that is Christ. That's very clear from the book of Hebrews. It's the point of the book of Hebrews. 
But the priesthood remains. We are the priesthood. And biblically, I'd like to emphasize, there is therefore no biblical distinction between the clergy and the laity. That's not a biblical concept. If you're in Christ, you are clergy. I know in, typically we think of those who are, who are set apart, uh, they get paid from the church as clergy, but it's really not a biblical idea, that term, that there's people in the church and then those who have been sanctified to serve God. They've all been sanctified to serve God. Different parts of the body of Christ have different roles, but none is more sanctified than another. So we need to recognize that with such an honor as being called, being sanctified by God, there also comes great responsibility. We're shocked when a priest or a pastor gets caught in sin. Our culture even makes a big deal of it. But the same weight of responsibility for leading sacrificial lives of integrity and of purity should be upon all of us. The same expectations we have of the quote-unquote clergy are the same expectations we should hold ourselves to. Because biblically, there's no difference. We're all sanctified. So take this new covenant understanding and responsibility regarding the priesthood of believers, and let's look now at the priesthood of Exodus in order to elucidate this incredible privilege of being called a priest of God. Which is actually just a shadow of our present priesthood. And even then, what's even more incredible is our priesthood is even a shadow of another priesthood to come. Which we will also be a part of. If you look at Revelation 19.6, we'll get into some of these things in Revelation but describes the priesthood which we will be a part of worshiping God in eternity in even a greater fashion. We'll look at some other passages of Revelation to come ahead. But first, let's look at chapter 28. So we'll probably be moving pretty quickly through this because there's three, three chapters, pretty meaty stuff in between. I'll try to go through it um, thoroughly but quickly at the same time. Chapter 28 describes the garments that the priests would wear. And that's really the first point in the outline. The garments of a holy people. This is, so the priests, having been sanctified to serve God, have to wear sanctified clothing that would reflect the dignity of the office. In fact, verse 2 says that the purpose of the garments is for glory and for beauty. That's, a, that's huge. And it gets repeated a few times in this section. But... The purpose of even the construction, that's the word to use, I'm not sure, but the, the, the putting together, the sewing of the garments is for glory and for beauty. Because they're designed to demonstrate the incredible glory and responsibility of serving God. Only a holy people can serve a holy God, and therefore the clothes that they need to wear need to reflect that sanctified purpose. The dignity of the office. And verse 3 notes that because of this, the garments need to be skillfully made. It's a very interesting phrase. It actually means uh, the, the, the skillful men are those who are wise in heart. 
fact, the, 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 the idea of heart for the Hebrews was the locus of understanding, the will, the, the thought process, right? Um, the mind. And so to be wise of heart means that they had the understanding in order to, the, to do the work the best that they could do. God had gifted them specifically to be able to be good artisans, good craftsmen. In particular, that they might prepare these priestly garments. In verse 4, list the garments they're to make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. And Moses is told to make all of these clothes with gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. Which, if you remember last week, were the same fabrics used in the construction of the tabernacle. So the point being that that the priest's garments reflect the beauty of the place that they're serving. It talks about the ephod in verses 6 through 14. And we don't know a whole lot about the ephod, um, but apparently it was an apron-like garment worn by the high priest. Maybe what's most noteworthy about it is the precious stones that are placed in the the breastpiece, which is in front of the ephod. There were two onyx stones that were put on the shoulder, and on each onyx stone was written six of the twelve tribes. Total of twelve, six on each shoulder. And then in the chest piece, there was um, a stone with uh, the name of each tribe represented by each of the stones. And the point being here is that Aaron, as the high priest, when he goes into the presence of God, is going to be bearing the weight of Israel upon his shoulders but also in his heart. He is representing Israel to God as a high priest in the same way that our high priest, Jesus Christ, is now representing us on his shoulders and in his heart before the Father. The breast piece, which is attached to the ephod, again has the 12 stones, and remarkably, these were probably the most beautiful stones we can find in nature. And they're mounted in gold settings and then they're clasped together with gold chains. In fact, the Hebrew word for breast piece here is actually uh, based on the, the word for beauty or excellence. So the whole idea of even having the breastplate is it is a, a breastplate of excellence or beauty. Because, again, the goal is to demonstrate the glory and the beauty of serving as priests unto God. And it's interesting to note that in Ezekiel chapter 28, it mentions that these were the very same stones that were found in the Garden of Eden. They're also the very same stones that are mentioned in Revelation 22 in the building of the New Jerusalem. And then also another interesting note about Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, in, the, in one of the letters to the, to the churches, it mentions that to him who overcomes, that is, endures to the end, the saint that endures to the end despite the persecution, that person will be given a, some of the hidden manna and also a white stone. And on that white stone there is a name that is written which no one else knows. I believe that points to... Um, What's going on here with the the stones representing the people of God? There's also the Urim and Thummim, and they're placed within the breastpiece. We don't know 
really hardly anything at all about what those are for, but apparently they were used for divination. That's uh, that might not be the best word to use, but to, to, dis- to determine the will of God on something that wasn't explicit in his law. So it'd be like casting lots, but there's probably more to it than that. But when you're trying to find God's will on a situation, you would use the Urim and Thummim to determine that. It also describes the robe, the plate, the coat, and the turban. The robe was uh, just a beautifully decorated robe that had woven pomegranates and bells. Why pomegranates? Well, scholars believe that quite likely the pomegranate was the fruit that was eaten within the garden. There's a lot of references in this uh, the tabernacle construction to the elements in the garden. Um, in fact, the, the word pomegranate actually means seeded apple. So maybe there's something to Adam's apple after all. Um, and I went, that makes sense to me because I remember the, one of the first times I tried to peel a pomegranate. I actually destroyed my parents. They had to repaint their walls because I was at my parents' house and I was, the juice was flying everywhere and it permanently stained their nice new walls that they had. And There's something representative of sin, I think, in a pomegranate juice. Um, the bells also were interesting. And the bells are there, it says, so that the priest will not die when he comes into the presence of God. And this has led some people to believe that the bells are there on Aaron's robe so that if somehow he doesn't do something right and gets killed, the bells will stop ringing and the people will know outside the holy place that they need to drag him out. It's possible. It could also be that the, the ringing of the bells demonstrate to God, so they're, they're, they're bells for God to hear. They demonstrate to God that Aaron has fully done all that was expected of him and he's wearing the appropriate garments could be either one of those things high priest also had a turban and on that turban there was a a plate a gold plate it it could actually be translated diadem or a crown um, which i think points to other things eschatologically and on that plate it would say holy to the lord designated as aaron has been set apart particularly for this service then it describes Aaron's son clothes in the rest of the chapter. These are for the priests that would come. And just like the high priest's clothes were to be for glory and for beauty, so would Aaron's son's clothes, the, the other priests. So in summary, the priests were to make intercession for the people. They were to give decisions from God's revealed will. And they were to enter his presence in purity and they represent holiness to God. The clothing of the priests allowed them to fulfill their functions in a way that would, uh, that would be demonstrating honor and dignity. The overall point being that the priests must always represent God as his people. As people who have been set apart. They represent the holiness of God in their activities and demeanor. And so in light of 1 Peter, we need to recognize as priests now unto God the weight and the responsibility of such an office. See, if this was the responsibility of God's old covenant priests, how much more it's our responsibility who are indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. 
See, why do ladies spend thousands of dollars on a dress that they will only wear one time at their wedding? And never wear it again. What is it about the dress? It's sanctified. It's set apart for a particular purpose. And to wear that dress for any other purpose would be demeaning what it represented. We all know that. If we saw you know, somebody you know, playing around in their backyard with a wedding dress, we'd think they were crazy. How much more should we be vigilant to pursue purity now that we have been washed clean? Our robes have been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. And this is why Paul uses this imagery in Ephesians 4.22, which you'll remember, where he says, Put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, that's corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And he goes on to describe what is, the, what is the conduct, what is the clothing of a believer. So this isn't just a, this is a good way to live. This is the expectation of how we're supposed to live. It's not a suggestion for living. It's like the priest, it's a requirement for living. And that doesn't mean if we don't fail that God hates us. No, we're covered with the blood of Christ. We're forgiven. We're going to fail. Accept it. But that doesn't take away from the incredible responsibility and the dignity we bear as his priests. One of my favorite symbols in medieval heraldry is the ermine. And an ermine is a, it's a relative of the weasel, which is noteworthy, I think. And it's recognizable by its short tail and its white fur. It's a very clean white coat. And because of its white coloring, the ermine became a symbol of purity in the, in the medieval era and of innocence. And it's believed that the creature preferred death to getting its coat soiled. It was said that a hunter could easily catch an ermine if he took mud and smeared it on the the, the, the front of the ermine's den. Because after being chased by the hounds, the, the, the ermine would come back to its den and being exhausted, but unwilling to get its coat dirty, would stand outside its den and willingly be killed. And so because of that, the ermine became associated with phrases like death before defilement or death rather than dishonor. How much more should we be vigilant to be clean in our life? As God's priests. And the second section refers to the consecration of the priests, which is in your outline, it's the responsibility of a holy people. What does it mean to be God's priests? This describes the responsibility of the priests under the Old Covenant. This is chapters 29 primarily, but also chapter 30. 29 1 starts by explaining that Moses needed to consecrate the priests. And the word consecrate. In the Hebrew, is a familiar one. It's the word kadosh, typically translated holy, to sanctify. So 
the consecration of the priests is the sanctification of the priests, the setting them apart as special servants of God. And the elements of sanctification, of the sanctification sacrifice, consist of one bull, there were two rams, and along with the bull and the rams was unleavened perforated cakes and unleavened perforated wafers spread with oil. It seems to run like a list of groceries from New Seasons or Whole Foods. But there's fine flour, no leaven, perfect animals without blindness. And they were to be gathered for this service. There's three types of sacrifice involved in this sanctification of Aaron's, of, of the priests. The first was a bull for a sin offering. So the purpose of the bull was to make a purification or an atonement for the priest's sins and also for the altar. The second sacrifice that was offered up was a lamb. So one of the lambs was sacrificed as a burnt offering. What a burnt offering was for was to demonstrate a, a being totally consecrated. It's often translated in Leviticus as a whole burnt offering because you would offer up the whole lamb upon the altar and it would be wholly consumed. And what it represented was the priest was giving their life fully over to God. And in consuming the whole lamb, God was saying, I accept the whole offering of that priest. This gives us insight into Romans chapter 12, which says, and note the priestly imagery here, Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Even the, the priests, that's what they did. They discerned the will of God. And now as priests, we too, through a transformed mind, are to seek to discern the will of God. The final offering was, a, was, a, was the other lamb, and it was for a wave offering. And, and we're not certain what the wave offering represented, but probably it represents fellowship with God. There's kind of a waving, which is kind of a, they would, it was like, the, the gesture in, in the wave offering would be, I'm giving this sacrifice to you, and it's coming back to me. So the priest would actually take a portion of the wave offering and eat it in a holy place set apart and it seems to represent like a covenant meal with God. So it's a, it's, it's the, the sacrifice itself demonstrates this, this fellowship that's taking place with the priest. And so you have purification or atonement, a setting apart in the first sacrifice. You have total sacrifice on behalf of the priest in the, in the burnt offering. And then finally this fellowship with God. This is what it means to be a priest. You're purified. Your whole self is devoted to God. And you have fellowship with God. And this sanctification service not only consisted of offering sacrifices, but in including a complete washing and also an atonement. Or sorry, an, an anointing, excuse me. An anointing. And the act of anointing was meant to 
set the priests apart for holy service. They would pour oil on their head. And, and we see in, in the Psalms, it describes the oil being liberally uh, devoted. The, the, the oil would run down over the priest's head into its beard. And the oil, because of that, became to, came to symbolize the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so often, the Spirit is said to anoint somebody. We saw it today in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news. So the work of the Spirit is seen as an anointing because the Spirit sanctifies, sets a person apart for a holy service, whether that's as a priest or as a king. And so if you have the Holy Spirit, you have been anointed as a priest unto our God. But before the wave offerings presented, there's this act of ordination for the priests. And it's done by taking some of the blood of one of the lambs and putting it on the ear and on the hand or the thumb and then on the foot. And it represents the totality of being purified, the, the, the ear that the priest was going to be ready to obey whatever God said. And the hand that everything that the priest sets his, sets his mind to do, whatever he was doing was set apart for God's service. And then the feet would represent where the priest went, how he conducted himself, what kind of life he was to live. In all of that, it belonged to God. So in all that the priest does, it's God's. He's God's. And that needed to be represented. And the, and the whole ritual is summed up in verse 21. This is all done so that he may be holy. The purpose of all of this ritual is so that Aaron and his sons would be set apart to serve God. And the whole service of ordination would actually take seven days, it says, in verse 30. And during that whole time, the priest would just remain in the tabernacle. And there would continually be a, a bull offered up every day. And it would have the, its blood thrown against the altar as, again, a continual reminder of the sacrifice of what it took. Any, and and the, the weight of this ordination service is seen in the fact of what is said in verse 37, where it says, anything that touches the altar becomes holy. This, this, this halt altar had, been, had, had blood splashed on it again and again and again over the seven-day process, seven-day period of ordination. And if anything touched the altar during that time period, it was declared as holy. And therefore, it must remain in Yahweh's use. In other words, it can't leave. If a person touched the altar, he would become holy and could not re- return to normal everyday life. He would be given over to God and dealt with as God pleases. And that could be death. If, especially if he had not gone through proper uh, sacrifices to, to, to atone for his sin. Verses 38 to 41 describe the sacrificial altar. This is chapter 29, 38 through 41. And it basically just, it moves from discussing the, the role of the priests into describing the, what's done on the altar. There would be two uh, lambs sacrificed, one in the morning, one in the evening. And this just became regular. All, these sacrifices would always be put upon the altar until there was no longer a tabernacle or a temple. And along with the lambs would be some wine and bread that would be offered up. It doesn't say bread, it says oil and flour, but we know what oil and flour make. 
probably also looking forward to what we celebrate in communion. The lamb being offered up with wine and bread. The next thing described is the purpose of the altar. And this is what it says, beginning at 42, 29, 42. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. This is God speaking. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron and his sons, I will consecrate or make holy to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord your God. So it it summarizes what's going on here. This whole purpose of the priesthood is so that God might dwell with the people. They had to be sanctified in order for God to dwell with them. And so this glory would abide with Israel just like it did on Mount Sinai. And the consuming fire that they witnessed. Chapter 30 begins by describing the altar of incense. This is a different altar than the altar just described. This altar was particularly for incense. It was placed in front of the veil before the Holy of Holies. So it was in the holy place, not in the holy place, but it was before the veil in the holy place. And there would constantly be incense placed upon it. It's made of very similar to the tabernacle and the bread of the present. The table for the bread of the presence is constructed of acacia wood and gold. The, the purpose of incense being offered, incense is frequently referred to or associated with prayer. And so the fact that the incense is con- to be continually offered is probably reflective of the fact that God is continually hearing the prayers of the saints. This is made explicit in the book of Revelation that the, the incense of the pra- is the prayers of the saints that come up before him constantly. And because it's a holy altar, God explicitly states that no unauthorized incense can be offered upon it. And not taking this warning seriously is what led to the deaths of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. This is what, what happened. I'm going to read this instance in Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu, again, are, are priests mentioned here in Exodus 28. And it says that Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. It wasn't according to the incense that God instructed, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. And note this, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. He just saw his two sons get consumed from fire coming from the altar as judgment. And Aaron knew he had to hold his peace. Because they didn't follow God's instructions. God's response is, I will be sanctified before all people. Now flip to 1 Peter chapter 3. 
verse 15, says this. Very um, familiar verse. It says, In your hearts, sanctify Christ as Uh, sanctify Christ the Lord, same phrase used in Leviticus 10, point being priests cannot be made, uh, they can't be cavalier with their responsibility. So what Peter is saying is we need to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Some translations say honor God and Christ the Lord as holy, but it's the same phrase that's used here in Leviticus, pointing back to this. And note how it continues. Sanctify Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Takes this saint living a holy life according to God's instructions and goes directly to proclaiming the gospel, the reason for your hope, to those who might want to know why you have hope in the midst of this world. You have been sanctified, therefore demonstrate that By sanctifying me as holy, which is going to lead to people wanting to know where is the hope, the reason for why you live the way you live. That's what's being said here. And he explains it, right? Do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, that it should be God's will, than for doing evil. Go back to Exodus chapter 11. We're going to come back to these ideas again. But sorry, in Exodus chapter 30. Skip to the bronze basin, chapter 30, verse 17. I'm going to get to the the ransom money, but I want to get to the basin and the anointing oil first. Uh, the The basin was there, it was in the courtyard, and the purpose of the basin was for the priest to wash. They were to wash themselves, according to verse 20, so they didn't die. And then it describes the anointing oil. The chapter ends with an explanation of how to make the anointing oil with a particular recipe as well as the incense. They had to be made with the exact specifications or else death would result, as we saw in the case of Nadab and Abihu. But I want to go back to now verse 11 that describes the ransom money, which is a pretty interesting verse or section it's mentioned here because the money that was taken from the ransom was to be used for the care of the sanctuary the care of the tabernacle and it was going to be applied the the, the census tax whenever a census was taken so whenever the people of israel were numbered the p every person was required to pay a half shekel tax doesn't matter how rich they were how poor they were every purpose sorry every person paid the tax. And explains in verse 12 that this was to ransom them. So a failure to pay would be no ransomed life, which would result in plague. So the point being that those numbered among the redeemed of the Lord, the ransomed, were to support the work of the Lord to maintain their fellowship with the covenant. That's why it's here. If you, had been, if you had been ransomed, and all of Israel had been ransomed, then they needed to pay a ransom, they needed to pay money 
to support the work of the Lord. So all of Israel was to be about the work of the Lord. In fact, this is maybe a better way of saying it. The work of the Lord was more important than their little lives. That's what this is saying. God is saying, my tabernacle, my priesthood, is more important than the life of one Israelite. And we know how much God cares about Israel. He repeats it again and again. So it's not saying any, it's not diminishing the life of an Israelite, or the life of the believer at all. It's heightening the weight and the, and the work of the Lord. And so as holy people, priests, we also need to recognize our great responsibility before the Lord. We're called to live for more than creature comforts in this life. And understand that when you take a holy people and you put a holy people into a fallen, sinful world, the inevitable result is going to be pain. Peter explains this again. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may be glad and rejoice. Note, when his glory is revealed. It's pointing to the future. If you are now insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. See, what, is it, what Peter's encouraging them to do is live a holy life, endure suffering for the lost. It's for the lost. In other words, he's saying, don't lose sight of the mission. Don't lose sight of what you've been called to do. A holy people in a fallen world will endure a lot of pain. They'll endure a lot of fear, a lot of affliction, a lot of grief, a lot of loss, because they have confidence they will be rewarded in the next life, in a greater reality. They recognize, it's because they recognize that, that they endure. They recognize that what the Bible promises them is far greater, that, that greater weight of glory that's awaiting for them. And it's because of that they endure. They recognize that, that we still live in the shadows. We can just barely taste the glory that's to come. And as we suffer and as we endure, embracing as our lot suffering, and loss. And as we deal rightly with the alluring desires of the world that 
would draw us away, the, the health, the wealth, the glory, the power, the sensual pleasure, as we deal rightly with those things, we feel it and it hurts. But we do so because of what we believe to be true, because of what's coming. You live a holy life because of the promises to come and by recognizing the promises to come. You do it because of that and through that. In other words, your purpose of living holy is because you know there's promises to come. But also, your power in living a holy life is because you know those promises are going to be fulfilled. It gives you purpose and it gives you power to live according to what the Bible says a Christian lives. And this isn't to say, this isn't to say there aren't real comforts that are provided by the body of Christ. And there isn't real comfort provided by God's word for us now. But it's helpful to recognize that these blessings are primarily a means for accomplishing a greater mission. These blessings are not particularly for us so that we can enjoy our life now. They're for accomplishing the mission. For instance, we know that soldiers will take R&R, rest and relaxation, in the midst of war in order that they can get recharged, that they'll be able to endure and complete the purpose for what they've been called. Also, the care packages they receive help stimulate endurance in the midst of wartime. They're a means to accomplishing the mission. But they're not the reason for the mission. Soldiers don't go to war in order to get care packages. That doesn't diminish the usefulness of care packages in R&R. But that's not why they're there. The presence of chaplains, the medical care they receive is all purpose to accomplish the mission. It's not the reason for the mission. And likewise, the church is not here to serve you primarily. It is here to serve you. It does serve you, but so that you can serve God's mission. It's here for a greater purpose. We are here for one another for the mission. We're not primarily for one another, but really, you could say for others, for the lost. We're here for the lost. And so let's finish the mission. Let's finish the mission in a way that is representative of the holy calling that we've been given as priests. Holy conduct that leads to salvation, as as Peter says in chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You want to know what the day of visitation is referring to? That phrase... No surprise comes from Exodus. It comes from Exodus chapter 32. When God warns Israel, he says, In the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. God's saying, if they don't correct their life, I am going to come and I'm going to judge them. This is pointing to when Christ comes in judgment. 
And so it's saying, lead, Christian, lead a holy life amongst the Gentiles so that they see your good works. They see the reality of your faith, the genuineness of your faith, and it compels them to follow God like you. So that when Christ comes, he will not come in judgment upon them. Keep your behavior honorable for them. And I want to complete... I want to complete the sermon by reading an incredible picture from the book of Revelation. The Apostle John writes this. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne of God and they worshipped saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They were accomplishing the mission. They endured through the tribulation. And remember, it's, it's, because, it's because of the mission, and it's because they had washed their garments white in the blood of the Lamb. These are priests. These are us. Pray together. God, help us to be everything that you've called us to be as a holy priesthood to you. You know what that entails. Help us as a church to know how to accomplish the mission and how to live a life of holiness in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We ask these things because we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We ask these things in His name. Amen.